looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world? Pop culture, social strategy, comedy, and other funny stuff? Well, join the club and settle in for the Jeff Dwoskin Show. It's not the podcast we deserve, but the podcast we all need with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Bruce. Thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week is no exception. Welcome, everybody to episode 61 of Live from Detroit, The Jeff Duoskin Show. As always, I am your host, Jeff Duoskin. Great to have you back for another incredible episode. That's right, I said incredible. I have redrawn the line. We have doubled down on incredible and moved beyond the normal amazing that we bring you week to week. We're now in incredible territory and excited to be here with you. It's going to be a doozy. We've got an amazing guest for you today, ladies and gentlemen. One of the funniest people around, Steve Bluestein, ladies and gentlemen, regular in Las Vegas. He's open for Joan Rivers, Phyllis Diller. You've seen him on HBO, Showtime, Comedy Central. He's a writer, playwright, comedian. He's He's a triple threat. We had an amazing conversation about comedy, his career, and life. And that is coming up in just a few minutes. I do want to thank everyone who shares, likes, follows, subscribes to the podcast on their favorite podcast app. We're everywhere, folks. Apple, Google, Amazon, you name it, we're there. Jeff, how did you become so famous that you're on every podcast app? It's the same way I got to Carnegie Hall. Practice, practice, practice. So now that I've done my part, if you could do your part, just subscribe, like it. But also tell all your friends and family about Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dwoskin show. If this podcast is music to your ears, they're going to love it also. And frankly, giving the gift of this podcast to your friends and family is probably the best birthday present anniversary present, Christmas present, you can give anyone. And that's just science. It's just science. It's been proven in laboratories. So thank you in advance for that. I appreciate you. If you're like, Jeff, I don't know what podcast app to use. Well, there's so many. Go to jeffisfunny.com. That's my website for the show. And I link to all of the podcast apps from there. They'll take you right to my show on their apps and you can follow. It's so easy. It's so easy. And while you're at Jeff is Funny, Money.com. Sign up for my mailing list. I send out emails every week. I don't want you to miss out. I don't want you crying and when you see someone else enjoying my email and you're like, why not me? Why not me? Just take a second and sign up and it will be you. It will be you. It's yours to have. Totally free. This is all free. I give it away. While you're at jeffisfunny.com, there's a link to buymeacoffee.com if you want to buy me a coffee. I'm always thirsty, so it never hurts. Also, follow me on all the social medias at Jeff Dewaskin Show on Instagram and Twitter. I love to hear from you. When you listen to the show, tweet at me, Instagram at me, something. Do you know? Let me let me know your thoughts. I love to hear what you thought of the episodes and all that kind of good stuff. Also, follow me on YouTube. Search the Jeff Dewaskin Show on YouTube. If you subscribe on YouTube, you can watch live our interactive show we do every wednesday at 9 30 p.m eastern time called crossing the streams it's me and a bunch of friends and we have guests and we talk about shows you should be streaming movies and tv shows on the streaming networks that we think you should check out and sometimes things we think you shouldn't check out equally as important equally as important information so if you're always asking yourself what should i be watching i need to watch something new check out crossing the streams there's over 30 episodes and we do a new one each week chuck full of great stuff and it's interactive so if you watch us live you can ask questions talk about the shows and we'll uh put your 
comments on the air. You, you can become famous. How cool is that? Who else is offering you fame and fortune? I don't know. I think just me. I do want to thank everyone for supporting the sponsors week after week after week. I can't thank you enough. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us live from Detroit, the Jeff Dewaskin Show, and it means the world to me. This is how we keep the lights on. This week's sponsor from the creative minds that brought you the spork comes the latest and you can't live without cutlery. Are you ready for the nork? That's right. Part knife, part fork, all cutlery. Don't let the silent K fool you because the nork is taking the world by storm. Slicing and stabbing your food has never been easier or more convenient with the nork. Need a fork? Time for the nork. Need to cut something? Time for the nork. That's right, the nork is the perfect utensil for all your stabbing and slicing. And let's face it, slurping soup is for the weak. You need a nork. If I can break for one second from the commercial, I did find this fascinating, this whole product fascinating. So I did reach out to the creators and I asked them, why the nork and why now? After decades of research, we realized most people don't eat soup, rendering half the spork useless. By combining a fork and a knife, we're able to now reach 97% more market share. Makes total sense to me. And let me tell you something. I encourage everyone here to jump on this trend. If you don't have a nork, you got to ask yourself, what are you doing with your life? Are you really headed down the right path? Google it. They're everywhere. You can buy them everywhere. It's a silent K. It looks like Knork, but it's pronounced nork. Check it out. All right. Well, hey, look, I... Totally encourage you guys. I'm sure like y'all love your sporks, but I think if you check out the Nork, it's going to be a game changer for you. So check that out. And now it's time for the social media tip. Okay, this is the exciting part of the show where I share some of my social media knowledge with you. I have spent way too much time on social media, but I pick up a thing here or there and I like to share it with all of you. It's my way of giving back. So my favorite feature on Twitter is bookmarks. You're like, what? What's that, Jeff? I've never heard of that. Aha! Well, let me tell you, it's the greatest feature in the world. I've circled the world and I have found no greater feature. Bookmarks allows you to bookmark a tweet. I know you shouldn't use the word in the sentence, but it basically lets you save any tweet that you want to do something with, show someone later, read an article later, anything like that. When you see such a tweet in the share section, there's a area where you'll be able to bookmark it and that'll add it to your bookmarks. You find your bookmarks when you click on your AVI on mobile it's where you would go to get to your profile. Then there's like a list of profile list topics and bookmarks. And so if you click there, it'll show you all your bookmarks. When you're done with a tweet that's in your bookmark, you just remove it from your bookmark so you don't have to clutter it all up. Instagram has a very similar feature. They actually use the same icon as Twitter. It's a square with a triangle cut out of the bottom. Apparently that means bookmark. But on Instagram, it means save to collection. So why would you save to a collection on Instagram? Same reason really as on Twitter. You want to remember something later, but you know how it is when you're scrolling a social media feed and all of a sudden it refreshes and everything you were looking at is gone. All right. So when you see something, you want to remember it, jump on it real quick, save to collection, add it to a bookmark. You'll thank me later. You'll write to me. I'm going to say you're welcome in advance so that you don't feel like I didn't get back to you quick enough. Check out bookmarks. 
Check out Save to Collections. All the social media platforms have a version of this. Use it. It's amazing. I promise. And that's the social media tip. All right. Well, it's time for the interview portion of the show. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, I talked to Mark Varner, former frontman of Grand Funk Railroad. We're an American band. All right. No more singing for me. Anyway, lots of great episodes in the live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin backlog. And we're about to add one more amazing interview to the pile. Everyone, I'm excited to share with you my conversation with Steve Bluestein. Exciting guest coming up here. He's toured coast to coast. He's a regular in Las Vegas. He's open for Joan Rivers, Phyllis Diller, and Kenny Loggins. You've seen him on HBO, Showtime, and Comedy Central. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for writer, playwright, actor, and hilarious comedian Steve Bluestein. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. You've done so, so much. I think the logical place to start would be uh, you wrote the Brady Bunch Variety Hour. (laughs) Oh, sure. Start with that. (laughs) Did you work with Bruce Valanche on that? Of course I did. Yeah. Bruce. I had known Bruce prior to working on the Brady Bunch because... I also wrote Liz Torres. I was a contributing writer to Liz Torres's nightclub act. And Bruce was a friend of Liz's. And so we met there. So when I got the Brady Bunch, it was like having a friend there. It was, and it was, it was like, it was a party writing, Hey, hi, honey, I'm home. Even we knew at the time that it was insane what we were doing, but we were having a great time. Great bunch of guys. All of them stoned most of the time. <laughs> it was the only way we could get through it. <laughs> That's amazing. That was amazing. Was it, it's, which was the one, was it Jan that wasn't, was it fake Jan? Jan, fake Jan. Uh, e. Plum had done a movie of the week called something about a teenage prostitute. And she had some heat as an actress in town. And her management felt that connecting her to the Brady Bunch again would be wrong for the, her career. And of course, they were 100% correct. And so she refused to do the show. She turned the show down. And we got another Jan to, to fill her part. The boys always came back. There was always, it's, I think, one one of the girls that always had seemed yeah. to always be replaced. <laughs> right, yeah. well, the boys are great. I'm still friends with most of them. Oh, that's cool. I met Barry Williams at a Comic-Con once. He was pretty cool. Barry hasn't changed a centimeter since the last, since I've known him. He's Always been open and friendly and nice and warm. It seems like like it'd be a, a good crew. It was because we all knew that we were were in this together. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I watched one of the clips on your website. So, <laughs> well, which one? It was some like Christopher Columbus. Skit. Oh yeah, that's right. I was in that one. Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, I was the guy with the big afro. I may not have made it that far. If I'm being honest. <laughs> <laughs> We did a Brady Bunch variety hour, like retrospective in LA. And we had to sit there and watch the clips. And when one of them finished, I turned to the audience and said, I'm so very sorry (laughs) that we put you through that. It's uh, nostalgia at its its highest. Who would have guessed that that show would have a, a shelf life? Now it's just surfacing again on YouTube and on TikTok. As a matter of fact, I just saw a Brady Bunch doing Shake Your Booty on TikTok. 
which I remember like it happened yesterday, being on the set, watching them do that. That's so funny. And then you were in They Call Me Bruce, which is one of those movies I think I must have seen a million times because it was like that early 80s period. Yeah. Where like they just played everything on cable like over and over and over right. again. <laughs> well, and, and that was so, you know, Johnny Yoon, who just passed away, God bless his soul, was one of the nicest guys you'd ever want to meet. He was just always happy, always friendly, always open and very funny and very talented. And he got the money together to do this movie. And what he did was he called all his friends. I didn't even have to audition. He just called me up one night and said, hey, Steve, we're doing a movie. You want to? I said, sure. Where do I go? Yeah, so, I, so I get the Brady Bunch for our Variety Hour. I have, they call me Bruce and Rabbit Test. Three of the biggest flops in show business. <laughs> well, they call me Bruce. I think it was a cable hit. It was a camp hit, I think. So Rabbit Test was, was that the only movie Joan Rivers maybe ever wrote? Oh, and she directed you know, it? It's not the only movie she ever wrote, but it's the only movie she ever directed. Okay. And again, I was managed at the time by the, Joan's manager. Joan, Casey and the Sunshine Band, Florence Henderson, me, Cher, we're all managed by the same people. And that's how you get into these things. It's very closed family. Got it. You know, Got it. You know. well, well, I cannot say I ever saw Rabbit Test. It's with Billy Crystal and he's I, pregnant, right? So this is this way predates Arnold Schwarzenegger having right. a baby. Exactly right. And Joan, because of Joan's reputation, she got every funny person in Los Angeles to do the movie. I mean, I think Imogene Coke is in it. Every single funny, even the small bit parts are by the funny people in LA. If you were to watch it now, does it hold up? Like, is it worth it? Is it like one of those things that, oh, you should watch it if you can watch it? It didn't hold up when it was new. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> okay, moving on from Rabbit <laughs> <laughs> So you had a huge career as a comedian, obviously, and you're very, very, very funny. I'll post some clips and link some clips from that. Or they can go to my website, stevebluestein.biz. You must have some amazing stories. You you opened for Gabe Kaplan, Dennis Miller, I'm guessing, years ago, right? And then Joan Rivers, Phyllis Diller. You were open for Phyllis Diller. I mean, that yeah, was I was in a three-comedian show at Caesars Palace, Pat Cooper, Phyllis Diller, and myself. From that show, Phyllis Diller and I remained friends for over 40 years until she passed away. She was just a lovely, lovely person. And Pat Cooper, who has a, a reputation of being angry, could not have been nicer to me. And here's a funny story. I had 100% billing on the marquee. It said Phyllis Diller, Pat Cooper, Steve Bluestein, all in the same size letters on the marquee at Caesar's Palace. And as we're pulling into the the driveway at Caesar's Palace, the cab driver says, who the hell is Steve Bluestein? <laughs> at least I got your name right. <laughs> yeah. And I was sitting there with my manager and I said, you want to tell him or should I? <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel like on a lesser note when I'm in the bathroom before a show and someone's like, who are these other guys? And, <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. I hear they're pretty good. <laughs> you do stand up too? Yes. Of course. Everyone does stand up. My cleaning woman can do five minutes. You know, it's like <laughs> when I started, literally when I started, there were maybe 30, 40 new comedians tops, tops. There must be 10,000 comedians now. 
everybody wants to be a comedian. I've been doing it for about 18 years, so it's fine. Mostly around the Detroit area. We used to have a ton of clubs here, like ton. And then they slowly all kind of went away. We still have one in Ann Arbor and we have Mark Ridley's comedy in Royal Oak are the two big ones. I worked that circuit for years at the height of the comedy, comedy club boom. I was traveling 40 weeks a year. In the late 80s or early 90s, I started to see one comedy club after another in each city start to close. Where we would have sold out houses, I would end up with half houses. I kept telling all my comedian friends, it's not going to last forever. Remember vaudeville? They said it would last forever. It's dead. This is going to die sometime, so you must have an ulterior plan. And I did. I started writing. I've written seven plays, four books, and that's kept me busy all these years. And of course, I wrote television as well for Norman Lear, and I wrote for uh, Playboy. Yeah, I, I did a lot of television writing. What project did you work on with Norman Lear? It was called A Year at the Top with Greg Evagon and David Letterman's musical conductor. What's his name? Paul Schaefer. And Paul Schaefer. Of course, we called it A Year at the Flop because at that point, Norman Lear could have put a phone book on the air and it would have been a big hit, huge hit. So I get, I was so excited to be working with Norman Lear. Of course, I get on a Norman Lear show and it's canceled in four episodes. Aw, and you could have been one of the uh, Jimmy Kimmel things that they were redoing <laughs> recently. <laughs> I like Jimmy Kimmel. He's a very nice man. He loves Norman Lear, so you could have, could have been Good Times and your show. <laughs> he also loves Fred Willard, and Fred and Mary Willard were two of my dearest friends. And so when Fred passed away, he devoted the whole show to Fred, which is amazing. Fred Willard is one of the funniest people. Just He's just one of those people that just oozes funny. I was in the Ace Trucking Company with Fred. When Billy Saluga dropped out, I replaced him. And I traveled on the road with Fred for a couple of years. And we became very close friends. As a matter of fact, in my book, Memoir of a Nobody, there's a whole chapter devoted to Fred and Mary's Christmas parties, which are universally revered. It was every celebrity in town at this party. You know, there was no egos. As a matter of fact, the party re remained the same every year. There was a format to it. And Joanne Worley was one that always one of the invited guests. Fred would be standing up and all of a sudden, Joanne Worley, who had been at the party all evening, would be outside tapping on the window. And Fred would say, oh, oh, look, I think Joanne Worley is here. And Joanne would come in and she would say, Fred, Fred, I was just walking through the neighborhood and I happened to see you were having a party and I brought my piano player. Would you mind if I perform? And then Joanne would perform. And then I would get up with a bunch of guys and we'd do the Jerry Lewis choir. Silent night. Every year, the big highlight of that party was the 12 nights of Christmas where everybody, Mary would divide everybody up into groups. And the most prestigious one was to have five golden rings because you had to invent a funny way to say five golden rings 12 times. It was just hilarious. Hilarious. One year in the middle of it, I, I ran out of the room and got Mary's vacuum cleaner 
and I plugged it in. And when it came to five golden rings, I turned the vacuuming on. I started vacuuming through the party, you know, singing five golden rings. And it brought the house down. So many funny people. And, you know, in Memoir of a Nobody, I document all these kinds of stories, like opening for Kenny Loggins and having one of the band members come down and says, come on, we're going to stay. We're going to have a steam bath. And I said, oh, okay. So I go down, I walk in, everybody's naked. Kenny Loggins, the whole group of men are, are naked. And I, who, you know, wear underwear in the shower, I had to get undressed and get in there with a towel on my, on my lap, sitting there. And I just kept saying, when I was in high school, who would have believed that someday I'd, I'd be in a steam room naked with Kenny Loggins? Yeah, I mean, it's something you could dream about, but I mean, the odds of it coming true. <laughs> yeah, really, really. <laughs> Memoir of a Nobody, that's one of four books that you have. That's just story after story after story. It's a series of essays that I wrote with like, a stream of consciousness. You know, they're not in a chronological order. It would be, I would write, and then something would happen in my life, so I'd write about that, and then that would bring me to a memory of something else and I would write about that and then I'd write about working with Joan Rivers and it went like that. How it turned out was like a, you know, in AA they have inventories where you sit down and you write everything out. And I said, this was like a big AA inventory. Right now the book has 90 five-star reviews on Amazon. That's yeah. amazing. That's really good, actually. And the first week it was out, it was in the top seller list. So I was really flattered and, I, and flabbergasted and could not believe the feedback I was getting on the book. Because as a comedy writer, you sit home and you write stuff. As a comedian, I'm used to saying something and then hearing an instant response. But when you're a writer, you write it down you put it out there and you don't know if people are laughing at it until they tell you. And they were telling me that it was funny and I was thrilled. You're in the Detroit area? Yes, just outside of Detroit. So I was working a comedy club in Detroit. My two memories are there was nothing to do during the day in Detroit at the time I was there. And I was walking around and I saw a sign that said, tunnel to Canada. I said, what a great idea. Get me a shovel. <laughs> <laughs> I said that on stage one night. And the other thing was that it was at that period when comedy clubs were dying. And so the, there was no crowds. We had 20 people a night in, in the club. And every night I'd get on stage, I, I would say, you know, if they, we don't get crowds here, the fire will be on Friday. And so I was sitting in the dressing room of the green room, wherever I was on Friday night, and a friend of mine from LA happened to be in Detroit, and she comes into the dressing room and she says, Steve, what? I said, she said, get out, the building's on fire. And it was true, there was a fire on Friday night. <laughs> I thought was hilarious. And you were the main suspect. <laughs> I was, they wrapped my hands in plastic bags, you know. Yeah, you know, I could burn, I could burn this place down, you know. <laughs> Do you remember the name of the club? No. No? Okay. No. Is there, was there a club called the Detroit Comedy Club? Not that I recall. When you work these comedy clubs for so many years, you know, they're all ha-has and tee-hees and yuck-yucks. And I truly hated working those clubs. My career was ass-backwards. I was at the comedy store and the improv working every night. 
And then one night I was working the improv in Las Vegas and my agents called and said, get on a plane, you're opening for Kenny Loggins tomorrow night in Lake Tahoe. And that's what happened. I, I went from the comedy clubs right to the big stages. And from that period on, I was working in Las Vegas. I worked the Caesars Palace and, and the MGM Grand, the Hacienda, the Sparks, the Sands, all these big clubs. I was working in Sparks, Nevada, and Reno and Tahoe, and I was doing that circuit. And then because of the economy, the big clubs stopped using an opening act and started using co-headliners. So Joan Rivers would work with Johnny Carson. Mother's Brothers would work with Johnny Carson. You know, so it was co and they cut out the opening act. So my manager shifted over into these comedy clubs. So I went from big clubs that had immaculate facilities with the finest equipment to, I swear to God to you, a club in Seattle who had garden lights for the stage. A Christmas lights, the one that rotated around, but they kept it on red, which is the worst color for comedy. And and stayed in modestly say, I have always had magnificent homes. One of my homes was in the LA Times because of the design and stuff. I'm sleeping in these, can I say, shitholes where you don't eat the mayonnaise because you're afraid that someone has jerked off into it the week before. Though those were the rumors that were going around. Don't eat the mayonnaise. So the first thing I would do was throw the mayonnaise out wherever I was living. And it was a nightmare. I hated it. I absolutely hated it. And then I was working in Albuquerque. The guy owned two clubs. He owned a club in Tucson and he owned a club in Albuquerque. I worked the club in Tucson for a week. And then there were three days off. We were going to work the Albuquerque club. And the club owner called me and said, look, I'm going to do a benefit, an AIDS benefit for those three days that you're off. Will you work it? And I said, absolutely. I get there. I'm not being paid for this. I get there. The opening act, the middle act, we're all there. We're not being paid. But the club owner is charging covers and minimums. So the club owner is making money. We're working for free, and I don't know who got the money to the AIDS benefit. Well, the middle act was livid and quit right there on the spot. I said, what are you going to do? And he said, don't worry, I'll find another act. So he calls me up the next day, and he said, all right, I hired somebody else. The, the new act and his girlfriend are going to stay with you in your room. And I said, no, they're not. He said, yeah, they are. I said, no, they're not. I'm not sharing my room with two other people, especially people I don't know. And he said, well, you better get, get done. So I got down, it was Thanksgiving Eve, and the club was packed, like 300, 400 people. And we had a huge fight, and he said to me, look, either you allow those people to just go in your room, or you're fired. I said, I'm fired? He said, yeah. I said, okay, you do the show. And I walked, I, I left the club. Because at that point, I had just had it. You know, it had been 10 years of this crap, and I was up to, up to here with it. That was the beginning of the end for me. That was when my manager, in the, when I got back to L.A., my manager called and said, okay, I have a gig for you in Atlantic City. I said, what, what time are the shows? He said, three and five. I said, in the morning? He said, no, in the afternoon. I said, oh, no, those are bus tours from New York. Do you know what that, that's little old ladies with the, with knit hats and purses sitting on this. That's not my audience. He said, look, you don't take this gig because it's a lot of money. It was a lot of money. 
If you didn't take this kid, I'm going to drop you. I said, you know what? Thank you. I needed somebody to throw me out because I would have been, I would have still been in those comedy clubs to this day. And it wasn't the life that I wanted. I'm very much a homebody. You know, when I, when my mother was alive, she said, well, you have two weeks off. Why don't you fly to Florida? And I said, on the two weeks I have off, the last thing I want to do is get on a plane and fly someplace. Then she never understood. So because I very much like to stay home and I still I'm still like that to this day. I feel the same way. I love being home. I left Los Angeles because Los Angeles had become unlivable for me. I'd been there 40 years and it went from a big little town to a big, big town because of the apps now where they show you shortcuts. My little street became a main freeway. It, It just became a nightmare to live there and I couldn't take it. So I moved to just outside of Palm Springs because this is where old show business goes to die. When I first got here, we were, I was at a restaurant because I, I said everybody in Palm Springs was in show business at one point or another. And I went to a restaurant and the hostess came up to me and said, table for two. I said, yeah. She says, walk this way. You know, when I was opening for Ziegfeld, <laughs> it's, it's literally old show business. But the best the best story, I met a friend out here and I said to him, Johnny, how's it going? He says, oh, Steve, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. I have a new manager. I've got new pictures. I have a new headshot and I'm going to start working again. I'm so thrilled. Oh, hold on a second. Welcome to Walmart. <laughs> Let's go back in time to the seven, early 70s, the Groundlings. Oh, sure. So when I first walked into the comedy store in 1971, there was an improv group. And it was Pat Proft, Bo Capral, Valerie Curtin, and Archie Hahn. And the four of them uh, were the comedy group. And the first night I was there, I approached Valerie, who is still a friend to this day. I said to her, do you know of any workshops that I can join? And she said, well, I think Gary is starting a class. And I said, okay. So I approached Gary and I said, can I join your class? I have no experience. He said, yes, absolutely. Well, that class became the Groundlings. And in that class was Cindy Williams, Lorraine Newman. Who else? Oh, the guy from uh, Star Wars with the scar on his chin, Harrison Ford. This is my life now. I can remember no names. I said in my act one night, I said, I was talking to someone. I said, who is that woman, you know, with the blonde hair and she and she had that dress with the rip on the side, but she still went to the wedding. And then she she had a loud mouth. And the other person said, Mom, <laughs> I can tell you everything about the person. I can tell you what they're wearing, where they went to school, who they're married to. I can't tell you their name. And I was in the very first show that Gary produced for the Groundlings. And of course, the Groundlings then went on to be the premier place in Los Angeles to find talent. And it started with Lorraine going to Saturday Night Live and that validated the Groundlings. And so then everybody in LA who was doing improvisational comedy wanted to be in the Groundlings. And that's how we got the wealth of talent there. And you know, if you saw my act, I, I was in, I was working in Las Vegas. I think I was opening for Donna Summer and I was at the MGM Grand. There were 4,000 people in the audience and I was talking and I stopped and I looked at the audience and I said, 
if I have to say these words one more night, I'm going to slit my wrist. And they laughed because it was like doing a stage play over and over and over. So I just stopped and I looked at the guy sitting up front and I said, what do you do? And that's how it started. And I started using all my improvisational skills that I had learned at the Groundlings. And so my act then became me talking to the audience with an hour's worth of material in my head. If he said, I'm a dog groomer, I would pull out my dog chunk. If he said, I were, I'm a nurse, I pulled out my nurse chunk. So you could see me every night and the act would be completely different every night because I had to have it that way to stimulate myself. And it also, like, especially when you're on tour with a big name, usually the big name is followed by fans, fanatic fans. They don't laugh the second time. So by changing the act every show, it made it interesting for them. And they, and they loved it. You know, I got fans to this day touring with Barry Manilow. I wrote a joke for, you know who Ross Kind is? Ross Kind's Barbara Streisand's sister. She's a wonderful singer and a, a really terrific human being. She has a fan. Let's call her Phyllis. And Phyllis follows Ross all over the country where Ross performs. So I said, you know what you should do? You should stop the show and introduce Phyllis from the audience. And I, so she said, this is Phyllis. Phyllis comes to every show I'm ever in. And then I, she looks, she stops and she looks at Phyllis and she said, I'm sorry, but I won't be able to pick you up in Detroit at the airport. You're going to have to find somebody else. <laughs> that is pretty cool to have been at the, the beginning of that. You know, it really, it really is awesome. I often say that those years trying to get into show business were more fun than actually being in show business because every night you would get up and perform with the excitement of maybe tonight I'll be discovered. And then after you were discovered, it became a job and there was no excitement anymore. You had this core of people that you worked with every single night. You went from club to club to club in Los Angeles with the same group of people, Charlie Fleischer, David Letterman, Jay Leno. And then you get discovered and you work and now you're on your own and you don't see these people again for maybe 10 years. And that is the hardest part of being in show business because I was on a TV show, talk show, and Rita Moreno was one of the other guests. And Rita and I, Rita, you meet with the producer prior to the show. The producer says, what do you want to say? You tell him what you want to talk about so that the host can give you the lead in for the joke. Well, this time, Mel Tillis was the host. He wasn't looking at the cards. He wasn't giving me the, the lead ins. And I, I was floundering because I didn't know what to say. I was you no know, new. Rita was sitting on the other side of him and she saw the cards and she reached over and she, she said, Steve, I understand you just had a baby, which was the lead into the show. And I said, yes, Rita. And then I was back on track. Well, after the show, I said, I love you. I will follow you to the ends of the earth. We were friends. I opened for her in Chicago. And then she took me to a Playboy mansion and told them how terrific I was to work with. And I got the Playboy clubs all across the country. And then we would run into each other from time to time, you know, doing shows, TV shows. And then I haven't seen Reader in 30 years. And that's the hardest part of being in show business. Become close to somebody, 
you work with them, you think you have a friend for life, and then you never see them again. And that was really hard for me. There have been exceptions, and then there have been people, there's one magician who I'll remain anonymous, who I was really tight with. I was at a party and he was there. I said, hey, how you doing? And his assistant said, we're fine. And then, are you in town, fellow? Uh, yes, we'll be here till Tuesday, the assistant said. And it's, and he did, the magician didn't talk, but the assistant did. And then I said, oh, okay, well then go fuck yourself. Good for you. Yeah. As my podcast gets more famous, I become just unbearable in the house. Yeah, yeah. I, think so. <laughs> I feel you. I hear you. I feel you. In addition to Memoir of a Nobody, you wrote 49 and a Half Shades of Blue. That's sort of like a sequel. That's a sequel, yeah. And then Take My Prostate, Please, You're a Cancer Survivor. Right. And so you wrote about that journey. I just finished my fourth book called Point of Pines. I had a really traumatic childhood, really traumatic, with two parents who fought physically, fought, they battled physically. It was really a horrible childhood. And the Point of Pines was at a place, friends, high school friends of my mother's lived. And those people adopted me into their family, but not legally adopted me, but emotionally adopted me to the family. It was the only happy time in my life. And I wanted to write about it. So, so I sat down and I started writing all these memories of my childhood. And I ended up with 25,000 words. And I sent it to my agent. She loved it. She said, Steve, this is the best book you've ever written. There's not a joke in it. The other books, every other line is a joke, but this one is serious. She sent it out to publishers and they all said the same thing. We want more. We want more. Did you have another book? It's hard to type with a gun in my mouth. Well, it's interesting. Memoir of a Nobody is, it's hard to type with a gun in my mouth. When I was first starting, I self-published my book. It took off. So because it became so popular, an agent signed me. She got a publisher, but the publisher didn't want to write, didn't want to publish a book with gun in the title. So I had to come up with a new title. And the new title, she said like this, she said, quick, give me a title for the book. And I went, uh, memoir of a nobody. And she went, perfect. Boom. That's how the magic is made. (laughs) And it's funny, my manager, I lived in, before this house, I lived in Bel Air. And we had a mudslide at my house, the house on the hill above me, the swimming pool gave way and 60,000 gallons of water came pouring down the mountain, pushing ahead of it a debris field, which ended up in my house, not next to my house, but in my house. I was really depressed. I had flood insurance, so it was covered, but I was really depressed because it, it wiped out my office. I lost every videotape every review, every photograph, it was all gone. It was like my career was completely wiped out and I was really, really depressed. My manager called, he said, he knew I was down and he said, he knew the way to get me out of that was to have me working. And he said to me, are you writing? I said, yes, I am, but it's hard to type with a gun in my mouth. And he said, and that's the title of your book. It is a great title. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's dark, but it's, it's a great title. I know, but it says it all. Was there a point when you were kind of reflecting on all that? Like, did you wanted to just channel 
all these things and become a comedian? Well, I was always the funny person. Another interesting story. I have uh, a Russian travel agent, you know, a real Russian who talked like this. Okay, Steve, we go, we're going to Paris. Uh, I got to talking to him one day. I said, you know, my family's from Russia. And he said to me, where? I said, Odessa. And he said, oh, well, you must have a good sense of humor. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, Odessans are known for their sense of humor. And there is a comedy festival, which has gone on for centuries. I said, do you know what I do for a living? He said, no. I said, I'm a comedy writer. He said, well, that makes perfect sense. So I was always that funny guy in high school. If you look at my high school yearbook, it's a, to the funniest person for all the laughs, you know. So I was always that guy, but I never had, I, I had zero support from my family, from my mother, who quite frankly, after 35 years of doing stand-up, never came to a single show, not one, because I just don't find him funny. No, that's my mother. I was working as an assistant buyer at the May Company in Los Angeles and was completely miserable, just horribly miserable. This is a, this is a fascinating story. I had a, a buyer who uh, did not like me because I couldn't, she never taught me about the systems, you know, so I couldn't do reports and stuff and she needed those done. And so she had me fired and there I was fired. I had an assistant and I was talking to him and he said, what are you going to do? I said to him, I think this is a God shot. I think this is God is telling me I need to be doing something else. And so I'm going to be a comedian. I'm going to get into show business because if I don't for the rest of my life, I will say maybe I could have. And even if I don't become successful, I can say at least I tried. So, and that's what happened. I was living in an apartment in an apartment house in Hollywood, and Dave Madden, who was Reuben on the Partridge family, was living in the same building. He used to hear me around the pool making everybody laugh. And he pulled me aside one day and he said, look, there's a new club that just opened up. It's called the Comedy Store. You should go down there. So Dave Madden and Albert Hammond, the songwriter, he wasn't the songwriter then. He was trying to be the songwriter. He's presently in the Songwriters Hall of Fame with an Emmy. They took me to the comedy store, and that's my introduction to the comedy store. It was because I was always funny. It just came naturally to me to be funny. And that's how it and the the first night I was there when I got up on stage, Sammy Shore came up to me and he said, You come back. You have the sound. Nice. I didn't know what he meant, but I knew what he meant. I sounded like I should be on stage. That's a fabulous compliment. Yeah, well, the thing is, if Sammy hadn't said anything to me that night, I would have left and never come back. But because I got that much encouragement in a life where I had gotten no encouragement from anybody, it made me want to go back. I remember talking to Mitzi Shore one night and said, I just want Sammy to like me. And Mitzi said, why? <laughs> And I thought it was a strange response. But 40 years later, I understand what you meant. Why did I need Sammy to like me? I mean, Sammy wanted me to like him. You didn't need it, but you needed it. It's, yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, one. Well, I get it. I get yeah. it. It was a wonderful time. There's this uh, documentary about the comedy store. Friends have called me and said, are you watching it? And I said, no, I can't watch it. Because I got to the comedy store in 1971. Johnny Dark, Dave Letterman. Elaine Boozler, Tom Dreesen, George Miller, Valerie Curtin, 
all these people that we all were there together at the very beginning and kept the club going when it was dying because it was dying until Mitzi took it over and structured a show. And it took off when uh, Jimmy, good times, Jimmy, he was famous on the TV show and he was working out at the comedy store every night. And so he brought the crowds in and that's what started. It. That's what started the comedy store. Those beginning years were eliminated from the documentary. They only need the names because they need to bring in ratings. And they called me when they were doing the documentary and they said, yeah, we're going to interview for the show. And then never did because I was not in the, you know, what they're calling the golden years of the comedy store. I was pre golden years. I was when, when we were establishing what the comedy club business was going to be, and, you know, and Pat Proft who wrote airplane and all those Zucker films, Pat was there. We were there. And Pat and I, I, we reminisce. And Pat, I remember saying to Pat at the time in the 70s, we should be writing this down because we're witnessing history. And we didn't because we didn't think that it was going to be history. This was just our lives at the time. And we never thought it would be important. But Red Fox and, and Flip Wilson, they were in there every night. And David Brenner and Gabe Kaplan and all these guys were coming down to the club in the begin in those beginning years. It's not as glamorous as what they're showing, but it is important. I just couldn't watch the show. And I understand it's wonderful. And I'm not bitter and I'm not angry. And I'm very happy for the producer who I knew as a kid uh, and has become a famous director now, Mike Binder. I'm thrilled for him. It's just personally, emotionally, I don't want to watch it. The story behind the story. We'll release this, <laughs> turn this episode into a movie. Exactly right. And the, you know, the strangest thing to me was I moved to Los Angeles and I knew that that's where I was going to die. I remember going there the first time and thinking, I feel like I've been here before in another life. It was just so easy for me to get into that lifestyle. It was so different from anything I had been growing up and having all the meeting all these hundreds and hundreds of people on the way up, people that never made it, never had any success and have left and gone back to their hometowns and me thinking, there's no way in hell that I would go back. No way in hell. As a matter of fact, in my will, it is stipulated that I cannot be buried in Boston because I hated it there so much. Wonderful people, wonderful town, horrible childhood, terrible memories. I'm not spending eternity. Here's a funny story. Here's a funny. So I had a friend, Blossom Folk, who was, is an artist. She was an artist, a wonderful artist. And she is buried next to her husband in a cemetery in Westwood, California. And it's the cemetery where Marilyn Monroe is buried next to, uh, from Playboy. Oh, Hugh Hefner? Next to Hugh Hefner. Every huge name in show business is buried there. Fanny Bryson, they're all there. So I went to visit Blossom's grave one day and I said, I should really start planning for my demise and went into the office and I said, I want to be buried in the wall. And she said, sure, I can show you around. So she takes me to this building. It's outside and it's just a wall of squares. And she said, this one's available. And I said, oh, how much is that? And she said, it's $100,000. And I said, 
no, no, I don't need the whole building. I, I just want <laughs> this one little square right here, you know, this little, this little box. She said, yeah, that little box is $100,000. I said, are you out of your mind? So I said, do you have anything less than 100000 And she said, well, we, have a, we do have a cemetery in Corona. And I said, I'm not spending eternity in Corona. So I'll probably be buried in Palm Springs. It's funny, you know, I'm 73. I feel 28. I realized my father died at 78. So maybe I have five years left. It's like being hit in the face with a shovel. And I have quite a collection. Getting over the years, I never bought garbage. If I had $100, I would buy something that was worth $500, but I found it a bargain for $100. Uh, Joshua Green was visiting. His father was the famous photographer of Marilyn Monroe. And he was walking around the house and he said, I love to sit here and just look at your artifacts. And I went, artifacts? Like it's King Tut's tomb. It got me thinking that when I die, this is just going to be a pile of junk to somebody else. But each one of these things has a specific meaning to me. So I've started giving away things to people who will understand the history of what it is and where it came from. I've started doing that now so that when I'm gone, all this stuff, like for instance, there's a cane that I have in the foyer that was made by my father. He cut a branch off a plum tree in my other house skimmed it, took the bark off, sanded it, and made it into a cane. And it's this gorgeous cane. And I have a friend who collects canes. And I called her and I said, I'm going to give you this cane. And I told her the history of it because I know that you'll take care of it and you will appreciate where it came from. You know, And she said, I would love that. And so she's getting it. You know, when uh, my mom died and then my dad got remarried and then they moved in together. And so I inherited all the stuff that that my dad would have had to have died for me to get at some point, right? So yeah. it was nice to be able to enjoy something that's handed down. No one else had to die. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, I get it. I get it. The people that you're giving this to and you can give it to them, that's yeah. pretty cool. That's actually pretty cool. My mother had two homes. My father had a home and I'm the only child. My father died. I had to empty his apartment, but I always have to do it in 10 days when I'm in Boston so people were coming to the house from the, the shiver for the week. And I'd say, uh, I'd like to give you something from my father to remember my father. By. And so, oh, I'd love that. So people were leaving the shiver with chairs and oil paintings and carrying trays of silver up. And at the end of the week, there was nothing left. And this woman came and she said, uh, I said, I'd love to give you something to remember my father by. And she said, oh, that's great. What would you like? I said, would you like a microwave? Because <laughs> 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 that's all I had left. Then my mother at a house in Boston and a house in Florida, she called me up one day and she said, uh, I've decided I'm going to stay in Florida. And I said, well, who's going to empty the Boston house? And she said, oh, I'll find somebody. And I said, okay. And then that night I started thinking, no, no, that." This stuff there that I, you know, would only be important to me. They won't know what it is. I have to go. So I called my mother back and said, look, I'll fly to Boston. I'll empty the house. And she said, oh, you will. 
oh, that's so nice of you. And I said, motherfucker got me again. Got me to <laughs> fly to Boston to empty your goddamn house. Manipulated me one more time. Hook, line, and sinker. <laughs> Hook, line, and sinker. So I got to Boston in the, there was a big sign on the front door of the house. It said, the water will be shut off on Friday. And it went downhill from there. She had cut off the cable. She had sold 90% of the furniture out of the house. So there wasn't a bed for me to sleep on. So for a week, I was sleeping on a love seat. She had shut off the cable. She shut off the gas. So there was no heat. It was literally the worst week of my life. And I had to hold an estate sale. So she had this break front and a guy was interested in the break front. I hung up. I said to the guy, 100 bucks. <laughs> just get it just get it out of here oh man we've got so many great stories so many great stories uh I, thank you for spending all this time with me I can't oh, thank listen, you enough. i love it you're really easy to talk to and it was fun we want to remind the audience that memoir of a nobody is available on amazon.com and uh, kindle and nook and ibooks and ebooks and barnes and noble and for enough money, I'll come to the house and read it to you. <laughs> All right. We'll post that price. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. I can't thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. It's been really, it's really been fun. Steve Bluestein. Woo! All right. Check out his books. Check out his website. Lots of great clips. Lots of funny to explore with Steve Bluestein. I'll put all the links in the show notes for you to check out. Well, I'm sad to report we're nearing the end of episode 61. Don't be sad, you say. Why? Oh, yes, that means it's time for the trending hashtag from hashtag roundup. That's right. This is where we spotlight a fun hashtag from the family of games of hashtag roundup. What's hashtag roundup, you say? It's a super fun place to play hashtag games on Twitter at hashtag roundup. We also have a free app, hashtag roundup on Apple and Google stores. Download it. Play along with us all day, every day, and one day one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dewaskin Show. This week's hashtag is hashtag some advice you need to hear from AHA Tags, a weekly game on hashtag roundup. Are you ready? Are you sitting down? Because this is hashtag some advice you need to hear. Okay, grab a paper and pencil. Some of these are Going to hit you right in the heart, and some of these you may never use. Number one, don't go chasing waterfalls. Please, stick to the rivers and the lakes that you're used to. Number two, two wrongs don't make a right, but three lefts do. Solid advice if you're ever lost in a city you're unfamiliar with. Number three, know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away. And if I may add, Know when to run. Number four, a smile goes a long way. Yeah, it does. Number five, don't mess with the food preparer. At least not until after you've already gotten your food. Number six, you're not fooling anyone on that group video call. Everyone knows you're high. Try wearing sunglasses. Number seven, if they'll cheat with you, they'll eventually cheat on you. This is true. I once cheated with ice cream, and later that ice cream cheated on me. Number eight, if it has absolutely nothing to do with you and you don't know firsthand about it, you can always keep your mouth shut. Oh, this advice might as well read, don't go on social media. Number nine, never pee on an electric fence. That one's pretty obvious. Why? Number 10, she isn't fine. 
She may say she's fine, but she isn't fine. Number 11. Those that promote their perfect life. Newsflash. It's not perfect. That's right. Don't get sucked into people's Instagram and Facebook facades. And the final piece of advice, something you need to hear. Tell all your friends, subscribe and follow Live from Detroit, the Jeff Duoskin Show podcast. Tell them their lives will not be complete without it. And with that, I bid you adieu. We are at the end of episode 61. Can't believe come and gone. But here we are. I want to thank once again my guest, Steve Bluestein. I want to thank all of you. It means the world to me that you come back week after week after week. And I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Jeff Dwoskin Show with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Now go repeat everything you've heard and sound like a genius. Catch us online at thejeffdwoskinshow.com or follow us on Twitter at Jeff Dwoskin Show. And we'll see you next time.